Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast series from the BMJ sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. Today's episode is called Resetting General Practice, and we'll be asking if the COVID-19 pandemic is going to help us solve all the problems we've been moaning about in general practice for years. We hear from Martin Marshall, Chair of the RCGP, Jenny Doust, Professor of Public Health at Bond University in Melbourne, and Toyin Ajayi, co-founder of CityBlock Health, which has helped reset primary care in New York. We have our regular cast here, ready to reflect harder than if you just found out your appraiser was Iona Heath. Uh, I'm Tom Nolan, uh, GP in London and clinical editor at the BMJ. Hi, I'm Jenny Rasanathan, a family medicine doctor from Michigan, currently based in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, and a clinical editor for the BMJ. Hi, I'm Namsuit Lada. I am the head of education at the BMJ and a locum GP in southeast London. Before we jump into this episode of Deep Breath In, a quick note. This episode was recorded two days after George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis due to excessive and unjust police brutality. And on listening back to the episode, we were all struck by how absent race and racism was from the discussion, particularly around social determinants of health. We talk a lot about the impacts that social determinants of health have on different communities in this episode without explicitly talking about systemic racism being key amongst them. This has given us pause to consider why our conversation went the way that it did and why we could talk about marginalization and the importance of listening to patients without ever talking about race. Personally, this has made me reflect on how desensitized I and other Americans have potentially become to police brutality ongoing in our country and how this needs to stop. It also has made me reflect on my own comfort in a system that privileges white people over and above other humans. We're going to take some time to reflect on why that was and we want to plan an episode for the future in order to discuss this topic properly and do it some justice. In the meantime, we're going to link to some resources that we're listening and learning from and you can find those in the show notes. So, Navjoy, I want to start by asking you a question. Um, in, in our BMJ editorial, uh, Jenny and I uh, wrote to launch uh, this podcast. We talked about resetting general practice, um, and we sort of compared it to how you might turn off and on your computer when it crashes or just slows down and it's not really doing anything. And we we're hoping that general practice might um, might respond to the same tactics. Um, so do you think coronavirus is the reset button, or is it actually going to act more like, I suppose, a virus that kills your computer? (laughs) Good question. I mean, I think that's the hot question on everyone's minds, isn't it? It's like what bits of what's happening now are working and what bits aren't and what can we retain? And um, sorry, my rather boring answer is I don't know. Um, I think I get this sense that everyone really wants to hang on to I don't know, the the headspace that they seem to have found from, you know, um, doing more triage, having more remote consultations. But I suppose it's been such an unusual time in terms of um, normal practice and seeing the kind of usual um, conditions and patients that we would normally see that it's really, I find it really hard to judge, you know, how feasible is it to continue when, you know, you go back to doing all the routine or, but I suppose that's the question. Should we go back to doing all those routine things? Yeah, yeah. And how do you stop? I, I, I definitely want to hang on to my free Headspace subscription, which uh, and, and all the freebies that have been thrown at doctors. Oh, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, goodwill Jenny, will, that goodwill will evaporate once you start going back to 10 minute appointments oh, yeah, <laughs> and people true. struggling to get through to reception. <laughs> uh, Jenny, what's your thoughts on this? 
I, th- uh, I think it's, it's so tough. I think, <laughs> well, I think there are a lot of us who want to feel optimistic that having had this event in, you know, this is the major public health event for any of us for our time. Um, so far, we hope we don't. I mean, and uh, I just I think a lot of us are hoping that it has exposed the deep challenges, not only in the way that many of our healthcare systems function, but also in some of the ways that our societies are structured and specifically the inequalities that coronavirus has exposed. And there are a lot of us who would like to believe that this is our opportunity to move in and replace a broken system or finally, you know, overcome the powerful lobbying voices of insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies and really fight for the right to health for all as a value to ground our health system. Mm. Um, And everyone I talk to about that is pretty pessimistic about that happening. Except for one person who we'll hear from later, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I think I'm on the, the pessimistic um, uh, side of things as well. But yeah, I don't know if that just reflects my nature. <laughs> and, and and to some extent, if you ask anybody, maybe you just find out what sort of person they are rather than what uh, what's actually going to happen. Or just their uh, like, years of working within the health system where change yeah. doesn't happen easily. I think yeah. we've, all, we've all just been ground down I think by years of experience perhaps I mean I think we've all been to a meeting like a a CCG or sort of primary care meeting where there's somebody in the room that just puts a hand up and goes well we've been here before it's never worked you know this just reminds me I don't know (laughs) and nobody wants Uh, to be that person but I know I I have become that person (laughs) it's only taken six or seven years and (laughs) I've gone from being the one going oh just move over give us a chance you know and, and now I'm the person going you're the, one. <laughs> You're the one destroying all those uh, young hopes and dreams. Yes. Well done. Yeah, at least in the US, um, some, of the, some of the other GPs that I've spoken to have made the good point that so many of the communities that we would normally rely on to mobilize and take action against some of the inequalities we're seeing, not only in terms of death rates from coronavirus, but in terms of who's losing work who is now um, applying for unemployment benefits, um, that those communities are so hard hit by the virus that they're kind of in panic mode and not able to take action in a way that they normally would. So who are the people that are going to be advocating for change? Um, Mm. Yeah, I think that, and, uh, you know, I'm going to, sorry, start over. And then you see that, you know, it's Chicago, New York and other urban centers in the U.S. that have been hardest hit. And those are the major progressive voting blocks as well, which is concerning. But that's a good point, I think. I mean, what that makes me think of as well is like if we're thinking about change, you know, who do we want the change to work for as well? You know, a lot of um, my thinking about, you know, this is an opportunity to reset. And, you know, hasn't it been great that all this digital change has happened so quickly? I mean, Mm. what I don't get a sense of, you know, I hear that a lot from GPs, you know, going back to having this headspace and doing more triage. But actually, what I don't have a kind of very clear sense of is how is this working for patients and actually what changes would our patients like to see um and there's yeah so that I think is another important part of the equation is actually you know when we're thinking about the communities that we're looking after you know what actually do we want to see what what's the kind of goal here what do we want to see at the you know what the ideal outcome perhaps versus what are the changes that we want to see for our working lives and um you know, if there's a massive um, outflux of GPs going elsewhere, um, maybe maybe the two align. If you, if you, yeah, I mean that would be the ideal is that you know <laughs> it aligns. But I, I guess there will be parts that won't. And- so I get the feeling that Jenny's kind of like wants to be very optimistic. We've got Navjoy who's so cautiously optimistic, and and I'm sort of just sitting in the back row with my arms folded. <laughs> sort of being grumpy. Um, that we see like all our... of us. That sounds like yeah, pretty true. much us. Yeah, <laughs> that is me. Thank you. Thanks for that. Um, uh, so three interviews today. Um, should we see if if any of them can can sort of help us or 
help us, but make us uh, change our, our, our point of view. Let's do it. So, Navjoy, do you want to introduce um, who you spoke to? Yes. So I spoke to Professor Martin Marshall, who is the current chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners in the UK. Um, and he is a GP um, for many years. And I spoke to him about, um, yeah, his thoughts for, you know, what what does he see the future of general practice holding and what can we learn from the pandemic? The COVID crisis has, has cast a very dark cloud over over our patients, the communities that we serve, over the NHS, over society as a whole. And yet, there are silver linings uh, to that. There are opportunities that that that, that we can um, we can seize. Uh, and I think it's really important that, that we do so. Um, general practice has been under the cost for so long, five, 10 years, um, massive workload, undoable workload, really. I, th- I think most GPs have been working at 120 or 130% of their capacity to even provide safe care, never provide high quality interpersonal relationship-based care, which is what, what we're here for. Um, and interestingly, um, COVID has given us an opportunity to to think about what we're doing, possibly for the first time. Um, in part, it's been thrust on us because we've had to behave differently. I think our biggest challenge is to recognise where those changes are beneficial for the patients and the communities that we serve um, and where they're potentially um, uh, dangerous or, or, or damaging to uh, patient care. The creation of space, I think, is really important. Of course, we've changed because we've had to change, but we have changed because we have had some space. I'm a, I'm a bit worried about the drop in clinical workload because we know that some of that drop is is stuff that didn't need to come to us in the first place, but some of it is stuff that should have come to us but wasn't doing so. The drop in administrative workload, I think, is is just um, is really fascinating. Something we really have to work on and push back on. Um, and indeed, I'm talking to policymakers now about how we can stop the kind of contractual compliance workload, which really added little value and showed little trust in health professionals and how we can continue to push back on some of the regulatory, organisational and professional regulatory activities, which again, they serve their purpose, but um, they they kind of become a bit of a monster in, in, our, in our daily clinical activities. When it comes to, you know, the things that we shouldn't be seeing or shouldn't be doing, what are the kinds of things that you would like to see kind of stop? You mentioned some of the administrative roles. Is, are there any other kind of examples of things that you think could be done differently? Yeah, so I think I think the big debate, and this is a debate, I don't have answers to this, but the big discussion needs to be around um, clinical workload and what is rightly the job of the GP uh, and what could be done by others more effectively. Now, you know, there are plenty of GPs, and indeed I've been brought up in the tradition that a GP's job is to do everything, to be all things to all people. Um, and indeed, actually, we're very good at that and very efficient at doing that as well. When I see somebody who's got a viral sore throat, I can deal with it in 30 seconds or a minute. If the, if I know the patient, I can say, you don't need antibiotics and they trust me, and that's great, and then I move on to the other problems. If that patient had been booked into a practice nurse or, or a physician associate, they would have had a 15-minute appointment for their sore throat so GPs are really efficient the reality is we don't have enough GPs and we probably won't have um, for several years to come so I think we we are almost forced into a place where we have to be uh, more thoughtful about where we add value as as expert medical generalists and where other services can be used to to address need and I think the model in the future of of GPs focusing their attention on more complex issues and i don't just mean biomedical issues i mean you know people with multiple um uh, problems um people with psychosocial uh, conditions so more complex problems and spending longer doing it yeah i think there'll be a huge kind of appetite for that you know having the headspace to manage those complex problems that primary care can deal so effectively with and then one of the things that, um, you know, the BMJ has been interested in and has covered for a long time is about too much medicine and overdiagnosis. And I suppose there's always been this um, conversation, I guess, um, if you like, about things like um, the amount of blood tests that are done in primary care and kind of routine monitoring appointments, um, uh, perhaps uh, screening co- uh, consultations as well. There's some debates about some types of screening. I mean, where do you think... Um, you know, we talked about ident- how hard it can be to identify where you can deliver value. But do you think there's any 
or are there any plans to look at those kinds of issues as well? Yeah, I think I think there must be. Uh, I, I don't think there's any any doubt in my mind that um, that we practice too much medicine um, uh, um, uh, within the NHS in in general. That that we we do medical things that um, possibly add no value, uh, might well be expensive, and in some cases might be might be damaging. And you've identified the kind of things that that we do. So I think it's really important that we seize any opportunity, and the post COVID crisis is one of those opportunities to rethink uh, where we add value. Part of that is about offering an alternative. Um, and that's why, you know, despite the, the fact that the evidence is not very strong for social prescribing, it's why I'm a very passionate advocate of social prescribing, because it, it gives us a different offer to patients or probably more appropriately, it gives patients a different choice. Uh, if they don't want to medicalize their problem, they don't want a drug, they do want to do exercise for their depression, then now they've got uh, a kind of systematic way of doing it and, a, and an assisted way of addressing those kind of services. So so I think that um, social prescribing is, is, is really um, exciting. Um, a lot of this, though, is about conversations it's about shared decision making between between patients and and clinicians and one of the concerns i have about where we are right now as a consequence of this covid crisis is shared decision making largely seems to me to have stopped we've we've become a very provider orientated um slightly dictatorial slightly um population focused um health system because we've had to i'm not complaining about that during the crisis we now we need to go back we need to rediscover some of the super work that's been done around shared decision like choosing wisely uh, for example um so that we can work more effectively with patients and give patients a, a stronger voice and we know that when you give patients a stronger voice by and large they choose the less interventional approaches than doctors will choose such an important message to remember for all of us mm. we talked about social you mentioned social prescribing and I guess that's a good example of um, uh, things that are introduced in primary care where the evidence base may not be, you know, it's not there yet and it's emerging. Um, and I know that's been, you know, columnists for the BMJ that we've had, like Margaret McCartney, have often talked about that importance of having evidence-based or evidence-informed policy and, and not having and not introducing kind of new new schemes or measures that that aren't fully backed by the evidence. Um, do you think that's still an issue in primary care? Yes, it must be. I mean, we you know we are primarily scientists as as, as doctors, um, and we need to base what we do on science as much as we as much as we possibly can. So. Um, we know that there is an evidence base for social prescribing in some areas. There's an evidence base which is growing rapidly. Um, it's moderately convincing, but not very convincing. I think it's probably fair to say at the moment. Uh, my stance on that is we do something that feels intuitively and theoretically, as I'm an academic, theoretically right. It's got a strong um, intuitive and theoretical basis. Do it, but make sure that you evaluate it uh, along the way. Because Margaret's absolutely right that there might well be a whole series of um consequences that would come out of evaluation about whether it's as effective as we think it might be, whether it's as cost effective as we think it might be. I and mean, if I take the example, I work in an area where we have really good, uh, particularly exercise on prescription schemes, because I, uh, I work on uh, the Olympic Park and our patients can use the copper box of the Olympic swimming pool. It's just wonderful. Um, I know that from the evidence that if I refer somebody for exercise, perhaps a young person who has depression, then it's probably going to be as effective as prescribing an antidepressant. Um, but um, going on exercise is more difficult and more expensive than prescribing tablets. So I know that there's a trade-off uh, here between the two. And I think unless we've got research evidence to guide our decisions around those kind of trade-offs, then I think we're not doing our job as clinicians. So so I'm not... Um, I'm not purist about, about research evidence. I recognise there's different forms of research evidence that guide our practice. I'm not calling for randomised controlled trials for everything to dictate everything we do. I'm happy to use you know, a combination of, of good theory and a little bit of common sense to guide what we do, as long as we're absolutely committed to evaluating it at the same time. I suppose the, the kind of thorny question is about how to kind of sustain any changes that we see or introduce any changes that... Um, that might come about when the dust settles on this current crisis. Um, I mean, how? what would your message be to any GPs who are listening? I mean, do you think this is something that can, can happen at a local level or do you think it needs to be kind of led by the college or, or both? Uh, what are your views on that? So, so I think you're right that we've seen really radical change in, in a very short uh, period of time. Um, some people say general practice has changed forever. 
whatever we do. I don't believe that. Um, I think there's a there's a resistance, which I would regard as a, as a healthy and helpful uh, resistance in the system to change. And I suspect the default position is more that we would go back to where we were. I don't think that we needed to do 80, 85 percent of our consultations face to face. But I certainly don't think that the current 10 or 15 percent is right either. So, you know, you want to drift back to where we were. Uh, my advice would be um, be planful about it. Given that the default position is probably a drift back to where we were, think carefully about where the changes we've made add value for our patients and our communities and for the NHS and really work hard to sustain them. So as a college, we're working very hard with, with policymakers in order to get them to understand what support we need to embed the good changes. Indeed, I was on a call with uh, Secretary of State this morning talking about that, particularly about workload changes and the need to push back on uh, bureaucracy. And he was very supportive about that. So it, policy changes, changes in the way that services are, are contracted and delivered is really important. But actually changes on the ground, the kind of mindset, our deep understanding of what happens on the ground is really important as well. Yeah, I guess we haven't really heard that much, have we? We it's all this sort of positive, you know, this this great shift to not seeing face to face, but actually a drift backwards maybe isn't such a bad thing. I think the point he was making using social prescribing as an example was really interesting um, to try to think about really where we add value and using things that are evidence-based. And not that that means a randomized controlled trial for everything, but that we have some kind of adequate evidence to support our decision-making. A question that it raised for me is around, um, you know, he mentioned the specific instance of giving someone a tablet for depression versus a social prescription for exercise. And I don't know how this happens in the NHS or, or in the UK, but at least in the United States, you can already guess which one is actually going to be reimbursed and thus which one is going to be um, more readily accessible to patients. It's just like, um, not to not to digress too far, but it's, it's a parallel to the opioid epidemic in the sense that um, physical therapy is very expensive and not reimbursed by insurance companies, whereas oxycodone mm. was cheap and easy and accessible to mm. patients. But the other thing on that is that as a GP in a, in a very, when you don't have much time, uh, it's much easier to prescribe your pill than it is to have a, a decent in-depth conversation where you kind of do that goal setting. Um, and I guess social prescribing is, the idea perhaps is that it's easy just to signpost to somebody else. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm still not sure that's the answer, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure either. Um, um, but I think it comes back to something else that um, Martin was Martin mentioned about the creation of space. And I think so many issues in um, general practice, or at least in my general practice, you know, I feel like if there was space, time to kind of think about, reflect, particularly time with patients as well, um, a lot of these issues um, could at least begin to be tackled. Yeah, I'm just going. Just one last point for me about that interview. Earlier on, he was saying about um, how you know in the future GPs will maybe be more focused on the complex issues and, and less on the, I suppose, the easy stuff, um, which which I hear quite a lot. Um, but it makes me think back to our, our second episode when uh, Iona Heath was talking about you know the credit that you build up um, and the credit she built up, you know, going to someone's house at two in the morning on the weekend. Um, we still build up a lot of credit through those small interactions, the sore throats. Um, and, and I worry that if we go with what Martin's um, sort of seems to be favouring there, that in a way it's just going to make life harder for us and, and ultimately that will make things less uh, effective for patients. Yeah, it gets to that point he was making about what is, quote-unquote, rightly the job of the GP 
Um, you know, and is it the better use of our time to rely on that credit and the relationship we have with the patient to diagnose or talk them through a sore throat in 30 seconds? Or is it rightly our job, as you were saying, Navjoit, to have the headspace to think and reflect about, you know, what kinds of interventions are most appropriate for our patients and to think more deeply and to have space and time to talk with them about, you know, addressing some of the other determinants of health in their lives as opposed to just prescribing a tablet? Yeah. And I mean, just being pragmatic, I mean, some of this is not, um, you know, it's, I guess it's not something that intellectually we can think about and decide what the answer is. There are, you know, factors that will force the hand, like the costs involved and the resourcing, you know, do we have the workforce to, to have the ideal set up for general practice? Do we have the money to do it? On that note, I spoke to Jenny Doust. She is a clinical professorial research fellow at the School of Public Health at the University of Queensland, working in the Center for Longitudinal and Life Course Research. And she had some really interesting things to say about the way in which um, the Australian government has been allocating services during the coronavirus pandemic. And um, I spoke with her about what she thinks uh, might happen to general practice going forward. So that interview with Jenny Doust is coming up in a moment. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need protection you can turn to whenever you need it. With new challenges always arising, we're here with expert medico-legal advice available 24-7 in an emergency. And because we're discretionary, we've got the flexibility to protect you for a wide range of situations with individual support that's tailored to your needs. During the current crisis, we know GPs need this flexible support more than ever. Visit medicalprotection.org to find out how we are helping our members through this challenging time, including policy changes, extended membership benefits, and medico-legal advice. We're talking about resetting general practice today. We'd love to hear from you about what topics you'd like us to cover in the future. Email practice at bmj.com or tweet us using the hashtag deep breath in. Well, now let's go back to Jenny's interview with Jenny Doust. Well, I think that GPs are, have been shown time and time again to be the to provide the best possible health outcomes at the lowest possible cost. And that's partly because they do have that relationship with the patient. They can provide that continuity and that regularity. And they are very good at sorting out who needs to be referred on for further testing and who needs to be referred on for other specialist type care. Uh, and, um, you know, one of the things I think that's a real strength of the Australian system is that we don't have that system where people get, you know, pushed to the specialist too early and then they get put on this kind of escalator that just keeps going on with more and more tests, etc. And then, then they'll fall off that escalator and get on to another one. So that kind of referral system and where GPs are actually rewarded for the time they spend with patients and to think about what the, the kind of clinical situation and that whole of person care, um, you know, I think it's just vital in any healthcare system. What's happened over the last 20 years is that um, the funding for general practice in Australia relative to the other parts of the healthcare system has really gone down. Mm. And it's made it much less um, financially stable. So I guess that would be my biggest hope is out of all of this, especially when we come 
out of the kind of current acute period and we have to start thinking about, okay, so what are the things that we need to do that are of the most value? Putting money in or making sure that there is mm. money in primary care and providing that mm. part of the healthcare system that is the most value for money, that would be my biggest um, desire is that that gets mm. supported really well. One thing Jenny told me when we were talking is that at least during the coronavirus pandemic, the Australian government and the health system organized so that COVID-19 testing happens in general practice. So patients go to general practice, the testing, like actually taking the samples happens there. It's interpreted by a lab. General practice manages giving patients their results and it also manages talking them through quarantine and isolation and treatment and then follow-up care. So in some ways has kind of tossed the the public health system and GPs a bone in the sense that they've diverted a lot of that patient traffic to general practice instead of setting up a parallel or different system. Um, And I thought that was really interesting, but um, she otherwise paints a pretty bleak Mm -hmm. picture of the recent history of healthcare financing policy in Australia. I mean, I thought it was a bit curious in the UK how um, coronavirus testing was never really discussed as something that GPs or primary care providers would would be doing. Um, I I haven't heard too much more about that, to be honest, but um, it does seem the natural place for it to happen. Yeah, I mean, that's the current source of um, a lot of debate, isn't it? That it was, it seems to be an outsourced to these private companies like mm. Deloitte and Serco. And why was that when, you know, primary care does have the um, resources and the relationships, I guess, to, to do that? There was a recent viewpoint in JAMA by david cutler is the primary author and he essentially it's called the business of medicine in the era of covid 19 and i I hate it when people talk about medicine as a business because even though it is and healthcare financing is really important it i still idealistically want to think about medicine and healthcare as this altruistic pursuit and fulfillment of the right to health and you know empowering patients to live you know, their fullest lives and to flourish, blah, blah, blah. Um, but anyway, in this article, um, the the authors basically um, think about this, the situation that we've seen in so many places whereby we are clapping for our healthcare heroes at the same time that we are undercutting funding to public health systems or in places where that has been ongoing for many years, like Jenny was saying. Um, and at the same time, because patients are scared to go into clinics, you have small practices, private clinics, and other um, healthcare organizations either furloughing their doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers or closing and just frankly going out of business. Um, and so the, these authors write that they anticipate this fall and certainly into 2021, there could be additional consolidation of practices, both large and small. Smaller hospitals will look for capital infusions by merging with bigger bigger hospitals and physicians may find more security in larger groups. And I think this has really significant ramifications for patient care. You know, we know that as we consolidate, as we come together in, in larger, more corporate structures, we are distancing ourselves in some ways from the actual community we seek to serve. Um, And I wonder what you guys think about that before we get to our next interview. I think you summed up up brilliantly, Jenny. Yeah, that's exactly my concern. In the UK, we see loads of this consolidation of practices, you know, partnerships getting bigger and bigger you know covering hundreds of thousands of patients in some areas um and there's a lot of talk some might say sort of lip service about you know still addressing the community needs but um but it's it it, it's i don't know i'm I'm still one of those probably few people in the uk who think that smaller is better um 
although that does um, pr- there are different challenges to being smaller but I'm not convinced that being bigger is better. The cynical kind of viewpoint really is that this is all being led I would say by the resourcing and the workforce planning and you know despite any sort of ideals we might have about wanting to provide the sort of optimum circumstances for like relational care and, and getting to know patients and continuity is that the reality of, you know, the number of GPs we have, the funding that it receives is that we have to find ways to do things differently. And, and yeah, I mean, I don't like that that's the direction that it's heading in, but it's it's trying to sort of marry this idea of what we want general practice to look like with actually what is the reality um, and I suppose that's why cynics like me shouldn't be in the room when they're trying to think about what change is needed. Because I just feel, it does feel kind of overwhelming sometimes that, you know, what, what actually can be done. I was talking to a friend this morning about this question. She's a, she's a family medicine doctor working on a mobile van for uninsured patients in Miami, Florida. And she's just a <laughs> saint and just amazing oh, you have nice friends jenny yeah she's, amazing. Friends like she's that. an amazing doctor they'll work in business and um and she <laughs> um and i asked her you know so if the government is having to bail out some of these healthcare corporations in the u.s do you think they could tie it to legislation moving to medicare for all <laughs> which is you know a really progressive um proposal to change the healthcare system in the US and I mean hard no right like <laughs> she does not <laughs> see that happening <laughs> and nor do I as much as we might dream yeah I mean I, that's the other thing as well it's like the the system the, the system seems to be moving further away from that kind of ideal like not just in the US but I would say even in the UK where we have an NHS, you know, one of the worries is that um, this outsourcing that we're seeing of COVID-19 testing is a kind of portent of um, just this ongoing trajectory that we seem to be on. Sorry, I keep bringing in these doses of cynicism and Jenny just really tried to bring in some optimism with her friend who's in a a mobile van and I'm just like, yeah, it's not going to (laughs) happen. Sorry. That's your job, you know, you can be a critical thinker working at the BMJ. <laughs> Just drag people down, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, that's what we do. Um, but Jenny, um, so you're, the last interview we have is with um, somebody who co-founded a group which which did do something quite, uh, or have done something quite um, very progressive, I'd say. You know, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, and I was hoping to find some hope by speaking with Toyana Jay. She's a co-founder of City Block, uh, which is an org- City Block Health, which is an organization um, in Brooklyn, New York that, and I'm reading from one of their one of their blog posts, the crisis within the crisis, putting our members first. And they describe their organization as um, one where they deliver personalized health services to marginalized communities trying to reduce disparities and rebuild trust between healthcare providers, social services organizations, and marginalized group, marginalized groups, excuse me. And she and I talked a little bit about some of the changes that they have made in the first couple months of the pandemic, kind of rapidly shifting as many of us have to reorient and meet the needs of their population. And I asked her about this question, what what hope we can have in the face of strong corporate interests and well-reasoned cynicism. Bullet number one is, you know, what do I think primary care should be under any and all circumstances? I think primary care should be a truly holistic um, uh, care delivery modality for individuals and families and communities that understands and is responsive to all of their needs across physical and behavioral and social domains so that we are most proximate to our community and our population and able to um, 
provide the preventive and reactive care that that folks need to stay healthy and to live their their sort of best lives and to live their highest potentials. That is, and and so bullet two is like, what is primary care actually in most places? Um, mm. And the answer is really different depending on the country that you're in, depending on sort of one's financing and organ organizational um, practices and principles around primary care. But more often than not, primary care is a disaggregated set of services that we provide to individuals um, that are paid for in chunks um, as opposed to uh, holistically for a set of outcomes, which drives the way that folks invest in and deliver care. Um, and that does not always um, incentivize, in fact, very frequently does not appropriately incentivize the type of incremental, person-centered, collaborative care that is actually required to deliver health. We started this COVID journey. We collectively, as a, as a country in particular, but certainly the communities in Brooklyn and Massachusetts and Connecticut that we serve, more broadly started um, into this outbreak at a disadvantage because the delivery system set up to provide care to our most vulnerable populations were not appropriately incentivized or organized to deliver health um, and to, to deliver better outcomes um, in aggregate. Um, and we've got to be moving incentive structures and clinical practice models towards allowing our providers to do that, to say, you know, that 45 minutes you spent on the phone with your high-risk patients is valuable clinical time and you should be paid for it. Um, those two home visits you did in an afternoon instead of 15 um, you know, clinic visits is an incredibly valuable use of your time if you were able to prevent two frail seniors from going to the hospital in the next month. Um, and aligning our incentives around that and also aligning our practice modalities around that will be a critical part of helping primary care continue to stay um, at the forefront of what, what individuals and communities need in order to, um, to live longer and healthier lives. One of the fears that I've had watching the coronavirus pandemic play out is that we have in this crisis an opportunity to think about making changes on a grand scale to the tune of what you are already doing and what you are laying out here. And I'm so worried that it's already too late, that there are big, powerful corporations that have already been making inroads in terms of decision-making, and that it's already too late for those of us who want to see this type of change to advocate for that, that corporate capture has in some ways already happened. I, um, I'm a pragmatist. Um, uh, you know, just my approach to change is, um, is, is incremental in that I, um, I seek for areas of common ground and seek to conquer common ground and then expand um, on the path to kind of a more radical transformation. And so specifically where I would go on this and where, you know, I think um, we as, as primary care providers have, have unfair advantage that we should be leveraging is exactly where you talked about in the relationships with, um, with our patients and community members and the credibility and trust that that affords us. And what has been you know, confusing and disappointing to me for a long time is that somehow we have not yet as primary care um, clinicians and as a, as, a, as a kind of organizing body figured out how to effectively align ourselves with our patients and create an advocacy body that is truly powerful and has, has a, like massive and untapped potential. And so this to me is a moment to say, okay, um, this collective horrible thing has happened in our communities. Can we listen, like really listen to what our patients and our community members tell us they want and need from healthcare? Which I think they're saying, they're saying, I don't want to have to go to the hospital ever. Right. I don't want right. to have to suffer alone. I don't want to um, pick up the phone to call my GP's office and not know when someone's going to call me back. Um, like these are things that people are telling us. And so let us figure out how to align providing for those needs in a way that creates an advocacy movement around the type of care that we believe these communities need. You make such an important point, starting with listening, which doctors are 
not always <laughs> so well known for. How would you suggest that we start? Like, how can we start doing a better job listening? And how do we then turn that into change? Yeah, I think the listening part, I think actually this um, this uh, move towards more um, uh, virtual engagement has been a boon, right? Like people have figured out how to host community meetings on Zoom or on Skype or you know, Google Meet or whatever the platform is that they're using. And, um, and actually there is, there's some ways in which um, the virtual um, space can be really equalizing of power structures, where if you have a nuanced facilitation process, um, you know, it doesn't matter if you're wearing a white coat or not, or if you're, you know, a doctor or a nurse or you're a community member or you're a patient or you're, you know, the person who mans the front desk at a practice. Um, there is a way to, to use that space to give people equal voice um, that, that can be quite powerful. So the first thing I would say is use this time to, to learn what folks need and want um, and take advantage of this opportunity to shift things around um, in the way that people spend their time in the healthcare system. Um, uh, I think so. That's thing one. I think you know the other um, piece for practices that are moving to visit to video visiting um, as a modality, so to telehealth with video as a component is now you have a really unprecedented opportunity if you've never been able to do home visits before to see inside someone's home, like actually literally mm-hmm. with a camera mm-hmm. see what's going on in their home and to ask questions about that and to use that to inform your understanding of what's going on for your patients in their community. Um, And then I think we have to uh, figure out ways to empower our patients to tell us, not just the healthcare system, but, you know, each other and their legislators and their policymakers, what they want to need and where they want to see their tax dollars invested. I think we've got to be doing work to help our patients understand that they have power to determine what this next phase of care looks like. Um, where what this next phase of investments look like for them and on their behalf um, and exercising that power in whatever space that they can. Um, I so enjoyed speaking with Toyin. Um, she was probably the first person I've, or maybe the only person I've talked to um, specifically about this question I'm going to start again. I so enjoyed (laughs) speaking to Toyin. She was the first person I've spoken to since the coronavirus pandemic began who really expressed concrete ways to use this time to build change with our patients and to begin to think about how primary care can transform um, as a result of the as a result of or in the face of the crisis I feel inspired and want to run with her suggestions and truthfully there's another part of me that knows how hard actual organizing is and can't see the next steps. Okay, so even if we were to really provide a digital platform and patients participated and people gathered and we talked about what all of us collectively would want, finding those areas of common ground, what what do we do with that? I, I, I don't know. And and it's and that's the hard work of, you know, the hard, long work of social change that um yeah, it feels very um kind of nebulous uh nebulous out there yeah yeah so i think there's quite a lot in the uk which uh this reminds me of you know this listening to what people want and um you know we've we've as in the uk had been incentivized to have these patient participation groups you know it's part of the the contract where i have the friends and family tests you know there's all sorts of ways which from the top have been we're being asked or told you know you need to listen to your patients more but um, and some, and there are examples of where that works really well, but I'm, I, it's great to hear that enthusiasm, but I, I'm still not quite sure, like you say, how do you actually um, 
turn it into something meaningful and useful. Yeah, I mean, there is something very compelling about using, um, or not using, but patient need driving change. You know, the fact that um, this is what the, the our, our patients or our, our community needs, either these are the healthcare needs and, and this is why we need to change. That's a very compelling reason for change. But I think you're absolutely right, Tom, is the, the question is how do you understand what that is and make sure that you're listening to a sort of representative range of voices and you know and then it becomes the whole thing about prioritizing and you know um just unpicking all of that i think is really difficult mm. isn't it also a bit of a consumerist model versus uh, a medical model i mean we in our practice we're constantly talking about how how to move away from what kind of patients demand the, to actually what the need where's the need well that that's why i use and the word need the, the risk I, I guess is that but if you but if you ask patients you know what do you want then they'll say this but maybe what they need isn't necessarily what they tell you they well that's the question isn't it well how do you find out what the need is and, and where it is um and it might just not it, p- part of it i guess is about asking people and and going to the effort of finding out but some of it will also be you know other sources of data about I, I don't know about, you know, patterns of disease in your area and um, all the other kind of social determinants that might be in your area as well. I think I think it's kind of quite a complex picture. Mm-hmm. Well, not to mention the fact that sometimes what people actually need is not something that our current healthcare providers can deliver, you know, getting to the social determinants of health now, Joy, you know, like so much of what people need is access to fair and decent employment. And it's great if we have that conversation with our patients that deepens our relationship, we come to understand that this is what they're up against and we're not able to employ them by and large, right? Like we can't fix that problem. Yeah. And I think this is where Toyin's definition of primary care, I I kind of came up against it a little bit of, you know, if primary care is... I don't know, uh, sort of an enabling set of circumstances to help people thrive and flourish. Actually, primary care, I don't think, has has all of that within its capability. You know, it, and in fact, I would say it's probably quite a small part of of that puzzle. So it sounds like what they've done in in Brooklyn, New York, with um, Toyin's uh, organisation is a, is quite similar to what's happening in the UK with ICOs, uh, integrated care organisations, where the the funding is uh, for primary care, social care, and other. Um, other pots of money are sort of being pulled together into one pot. Um, and I think, well, from my understanding of how that's going, <clears throat> still a bit early to, to to know if that's a success or not. I agree ideologically, of course, with this idea of looking at a holistic set of outcomes and figuring out some way to um, finance or compensate people for providing care that results in this wonderful set of outcomes, as opposed to, like Toyin was saying, this disaggregated set of services that are paid for in piecemeal chunks. Um, But, you know, so many of the classic arguments against a financing model like that um, are that we can't be held responsible for outcomes that we contribute very little to. And you know, it's, it's again, that, that piece that, you know, we're sending folks back to the environment after they're in our office where their health problems started in the first place. And, you know, we just, we have such a small, sometimes I feel like we have such a small influence on their overall health or well-being or outcomes. And, and to then think about being held accountable for those is in some ways alarming. I mean, but the, the the funding being, you know, less siloed and, and thinking about things in a less siloed way. I mean, that definitely sounds intuitively like if that, you know, the, the sort of principles of integrated care, I think, intuitively feel like they're right. I don't know if any evaluation would sort of bear that out. Um, but I was also thinking that um, just from Toyin's interview and actually hearing us speak as well, where we're all... Um, maybe Jenny less so, but I, I feel like I'm pretty cynical about this kind of thing. Actually, the person or people driving change is so important as well. You need those kind of idealistic people with the big vision 
with the belief and actually with the relationships who can know the right people and speak to the right people and influence things. And actually that is really fundamental and probably why I will never be involved in that level of leadership because (laughs) there's just too much cynicism there. But those people are so important. And actually I'm thinking about my experiences of change within an organisation and actually you do really need. Um, It's that combination of the kind of right time, right system and the right personal group of people taking it forward. I think if you if you want um, if you want someone to lead an organisation that doesn't need to change, then um, I'm your man. I, I'll take that forward. And, uh, <laughs> that <laughs> doesn't no change, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't change. If you, yeah. yeah, if you want just stay strong and stable with Tom Nolan. <laughs> but this yeah. is the Power history of social uh, change, right? right? No, David Cameron. Sorry, this Who is the history of social change that people organise and try to do this incredibly hard work of getting people to come along in their movement for decades until finally the right set of circumstances can occasionally come together and we get rapid bursts of change you know and i'm thinking about changes with respect to um marriage equality for example in the united states but that was on the wave of decades of long hard activism and people losing their lives for it um so you know it is trying to yeah maybe think about this in the longer term like um Mm. you know doing some of the work now in terms of listening and thinking about ways that we can better understand and orient ourselves to the needs of people trying to lay the groundwork for when there is a moment of opportunity which may or may not be this coronavirus to then be able to accelerate that change into something meaningful so if we think back to how we were feeling at the start of the episode uh, we've heard from three experts from across the globe um how are we feeling uh enough joy let's start with you because you're you're on the more sort of cynical end yeah, I mean, I think I, I don't think I've heard anything that's really made me change. You know, I I, I think that not, not just being cynical, but also this understanding, I think, that change is really difficult and that um, I'm still struck by Martin's point that the default will be a drift back to the status quo. And so I think um, the one of the lessons for me, I guess, is that if you want things to change, you have to be quite intentional about it. I think another uh, thing that I've picked up from our discussion and from the interviews is that there is this question about, well, what is the role of a GP and where does a GP really deliver value and how can we identify that and, and work on that and understand what that is and do you know the evaluations that we've been talking about to, to understand that whether what we do is effective. And then finally, I would say the one thing that I am really struck by is this idea of working with patients to understand that as well I think is really important it feels a bit like um when we get submissions to the BMJ and you, you sort of send them back with usually about 100 questions back to the authors <laughs> yeah that's exactly like the peer review yeah. process <laughs> yes uh, Jenny what strikes me about this is similar to Navdroid, I think there are so many different dimensions to this, right? Like not only is it, oh, what can we be doing differently in terms of the services we're providing, the tests we're ordering, what's quote unquote essential and getting back to that evidence base as much as possible, but then also looking at the bigger picture um, of the services we're delivering relative to patients better understanding their needs. And then this piece about, you know, what is primary care? What should it be? What does that mean in terms of how we um, pay for things? And yeah, I think the thing I'll take home or I already am home. I think the thing I'll sit with is (laughs) um, kind of what is rightly the job of the GP and where do we really add value? I want to think more on that. Hmm. And for me, um, I, I sort of feeling that still a lot of this is about the organisation, maybe at a national or a level way above where I am. Um, 
but still, I think particularly with, with Toyen's comments about, uh, you know, why not make a start by listening, trying to listen more to patients and, and keep chipping away at things. And, and like you said, Jenny, um, it can take many years, but um, maybe I give up too easily with these things and just need to keep uh, chipping away at it. Mm. That's, no, that's good. That's a, that's a good. I feel that's a good kind of optimistic note to to end on. You've had quite a journey, Tom. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I've, I'm at least at a sort of neutral level now. That's good. Just just keep chipping. We've got Deep Breath Out coming up in a second, but first I need to say thank you to Toyin, Jenny and Martin for speaking to us, and thank you to the band Childcare for their lovely music. And finally, thank you Navjoit. See you next time. She's writing an email. <laughs> Sorry, I, I was writing an email. <laughs> um, but, yeah, thanks, bye. <laughs> and thank you, Jenny. Oh, thanks, Tom. <laughs> Are you okay? You've drifted off as well. Good. No, I was laughing. I was doing something on all our behalf. I was just oh, saying, sorry, you know, saying we're late for a meeting. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Sorry, I wasn't just writing around a meme. It was for the team. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks' time with another episode when we'll be having a closer look at our full favourite vitamin, vitamin D. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast from so you don't miss out. And now for our deep breath out. For new listeners, um, or those who have never got this far on the podcast before, this is our safe place to share some things that help us to de-stress after a long day. Today, we've got a request from Aileen Hickey, who's one of my partners at Brockwell Park Surgery. She has chosen a track from the band Childcare, who also happens to be the band whose music you hear in the introduction and throughout these podcasts. She's good friends with the lead singer, Ian, who, in between writing songs and recording albums, helped us out on reception last year. It was excellent uh, excellent receptionist the song that she's chosen is called bamboo and you can find it and all the childcare's music on spotify
had things to do.